Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Northeast Newscast. As always, I'm your host, Paul Thompson, and I'll be joined this week by Jordan Sheely, the project director at Jerusalem Farm in the historic Northeast. Currently, the organization is working on building a new house at the intersection of Missouri and Garfield in order to expand their services. After that's completed, they'll be able to use their current facility off of Garfield and Independence Avenue to host groups to do community service projects throughout the community. They're also working on a new roof for a homeowner near the intersection of Hardesty and St. John. And they've also established the Neighborhood Accountability Board to tackle codes violations and disputes between neighbors. The goal? To keep the city from having to write violations for a neighbor who maybe is just between paychecks or having trouble making ends meet. And to create a dialogue between the individual who may be calling in a complaint and the individual who's being reported. The hope, according to Sheely, is to create an additional sense of perspective between neighbors and hopefully come to an understanding to get the codes violation resolved without having to involve the city. Jerusalem Farm has also created a compost program, which includes more than 70 participants at the time of recording. The organization has only been in the historic Northeast for five years, but in that time, they've established pretty deep roots in the area. They have big plans moving forward and want to be a part of the community. If you've heard about Jerusalem Farm before, but aren't sure exactly what they do or what their role is in the community, I encourage you to listen. And if you knew a little bit about them, but you weren't sure if you were behind their efforts, I'd suggest that when you're finished listening to this episode, your thoughts may have changed. Sheely comes off as earnest, thoughtful, somebody who cares about the people in the community. Now, if you're dubious about that statement, or you find it sappy, you'll have an opportunity soon enough to decide for yourself. My interview with Jordan Sheely of Jerusalem Farm is coming right up. All right, Paul Thompson here. I'm sitting at Jerusalem Farm across from Jordan Sheely. He's the project director here. And um, this is my first experience actually visiting the site. It's really cool, uh, just off Garfield in the historic Northeast. And I had a chance to kind of tour the farm. So I wanted to start off by offering you a chance to kind of talk about how long you've been here, uh, how much work goes into maintaining the farm, Mm -hmm. and just kind of the efforts that have taken place at this property. Yeah, so my wife and I moved here in 2012, April 1st, 2012, and um, we moved here from West Virginia, and we lived in a similar community called Nazareth Farm, Uh Um, and we were invited to come here by the campus minister at Avila University, Uh Dave Armstrong. Uh Um, We knew him from, he would bring students out to visit um, where we were in West Virginia, and this building was becoming available. Um, the Don Bosco Center was um, closing some of its programs and um, going to be selling some of its property. So um, he thought it would be a great idea to try to start another community here in Kansas City. And so he called us and asked if we'd be willing to give it a shot. So How long did that decision take you to make? Well, you know, he called us in, what, maybe October of 2011, and um, we flew out here and met with him and some other people. Um, we toured the building, met folks over at Don Bosco Center, and my wife and I, um, we had never been to Kansas City before, so mm-hmm. we were initially... Um, I don't know what the word is, apprehensive to sure. coming here. Just the perfect word. Yeah. <laughs> family. I have my family's in California. Her family's in Michigan. But um, after meeting people here, um, getting to know Kansas City, seeing this property, uh, we just felt that this was 
um, something that perhaps we were being called to do, and so we decided to give it a shot, and cool. here we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it really is quite the operation. I, I mean, I was impressed looking around at, at the attention to detail, mm -hmm. uh, how you've reused discarded items like mm -hmm. tires and wine bottles to help construct the greenhouse in the backyard, and, and just the effort and attention to detail, generally speaking. Um, can you talk about some of the crops that you're growing here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we we um, grow a lot of different vegetables, um, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, um, variety of greens, broccoli, cabbage. Um, our farming and Farming is a, people often when they hear Jerusalem Farm, they get a little bit confused, imagining that we're in a rural location mm -hmm. or that um, we have a, a large operation. For us, it's a way to connect with the earth. Um, to, for us, it stems from our faith, connecting with our creator and also being able to teach others um, how to care for creation. Um, we have a lot of high school and college students that stay with us throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And it's surprising how little people know where their food comes from, the amount of labor that goes into it, um, the various farming practices that are detrimental to the earth or life-giving to the earth. Um, so we consume that food and then we also share with our neighbors, but we, we don't produce enough to sell at, say, the Northeast Farmers Market mm -hmm. um, or other things like that, mainly because we're feeding um, our full-time community and about 300 volunteers a year that come through here. Well, and I, I know that I, you know, I, I had written down a checklist of all these things mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you about, but I think you just brought up something interesting, mm -hmm. so I'm going to go ahead and jump the line yeah. here with, the, yeah. with that stuff. You mentioned the people that you bring into your home, mm -hmm. uh, hundreds a year. Mm -hmm. What's the intention of that process, and what, generally speaking, do these students say that they've learned after they're, mm -hmm. they're finished with their time here? Mm -hmm. So our community is centered on our four cornerstones. Uh, prayer, community, service, and simplicity. And so we try to evaluate um, and contemplate those um, pillars or those cornerstones and how we can apply them to our lives. And then we invite um, high school and college students from um, locally from around the city. And also we get groups that come from California, Chicago. We have a group coming from D.C. next year. How do you get connected with them? Um, you know, it's word of mouth. So um, campus ministers, these are primarily Catholic high schools or parishes or colleges mm -hmm. that are coming here um, as we're a Catholic institution here. Um, although we are open to, to people of all faiths and not all those students are Catholic that come. They just go to these various schools. It just happens to be a way that they can hear about Right, it. and that's how they hear about us. Um, and they come here, for them it's a service immersion trip. So they're, they're uh, seeking an immersion experience of being able to do service and to be able to learn, in this case, about the urban setting. And we also try to teach them about um, what we call Catholic social teaching, but they're basically ideas of social justice. So the idea of human dignity, um, the idea of the rights of workers and the dignity of work, care for creation. There are seven principles that we teach and we try to apply in our lives. Um, and then we do service in the area as we work with them. So our intent with, to answer your question, our intent with those volunteers is um, just to be a living example and, to f and invite them into community on how they can um, live in this world while also being mindful of those around them, their neighbors or the global community. And what kind of feedback do you get from them after the fact? I mean, do, you, do they fill out a questionnaire or something, an exit survey? Yeah, we done? do evaluations. You know, the, the cornerstone that 
um, is most striking to a lot of the volunteers is probably our cornerstone of simplicity. Mm -hmm. So when we invite them here, um, we don't have a TV. Um, we refrain from using electronics. We, we don't have them use their um, cell phone. They, we, they keep that away all week. Um, and the purpose of that is just so we can be fully present to the work we're doing, the community we're building. Um, we are mindful of our water consumption, so we ask them to take limited showers during the week. We, we take bucket showers, mm -hmm. um, filling five-gallon buckets, and just using that water. Um, with we a have, sponge or something? Yeah, with the, it's like a sponge bath. Um, we have an energy fast every Thursday night where we refrain from using um, our lights and our water from our faucets. And these things are mainly for the purpose of reflection of the privilege of these resources in our lives, reflecting on how we get these resources. So our energy, for instance, um, we don't use our AC or our heater. We do have it, um, those, those um, mechanical units, but we try to refrain from using them as much as possible. Mm -hmm. um, living in West Virginia, seeing the effects of gathering cold, the destruction of mountains, destruction of communities, there's people in our own community that get their power or their water routinely shut off because of bills. Mm -hmm. There's people globally around the world that don't even have access to fresh drinking water, yet we poop and pee into ours. Right. Um, and so we, we try to think of all these things and, and, and think, how can we be responsible stewards? That's why we collect our rainwater um, and we, we do a number of practices to try to conserve these resources. Well, I hope you forgive me using my phone to record this interview. No. <laughs> um, and I, you mentioned that one of the other facets of what you do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the farm, the the crop, the crop growing, mm -hmm. um, is is just one element. It, there's also exterior elements where you go out into the community mm -hmm. and and provide services for for people who are in need. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before we started that one of those things you're working on now is a home over at Missouri and Garfield. Mm -hmm. And can you maybe talk about the scope of the work that's going on there and, and also how you got to to do that project? Yeah, so the, the house we're building on Missouri and Garfield is actually for our community. We're, that's a, an expansion we're doing. So currently in, in our building, um, we have outgrown this space. Um, we have eight full-time community members, plus we invite around 24 volunteers to stay with us for one week mm -hmm. at a time. Um, and so, and I have you know, two kids and my wife, and mm -hmm. we just don't have enough space to house our community. So we're building a single family residential house on Missouri, um, and that will house our community. And then this will be our full-time retreat center. Um, and so that's the purpose of that house. We tried looking in the area for a house that we can fix up, but we couldn't find a house that was both close enough in proximity and also large enough um, to accommodate our community. Mm -hmm. And so we had this empty lot donated to us by the city about five years ago. It was mm -hmm. an abandoned, vacant lot within the land bank. And we decided we would build a house, but also we wanted to build a house that reflected our values um, in care for creation in a lot of ways. And so um, we thought a lot about the materials we use, um, the design of the house, the durability of those materials, and our long-term impact of operating that house. And so we've designed it in a way that'll be net zero. Um, and we're using um, insulated concrete forms, which are somewhat of a rare um, way of building here in Kansas City, more popular in other areas of the world mm -hmm. and, and in the country. But um, it's been fun, it's been exciting. How far along are you? 
So we, we have um, the roof on and we're ready to put the metal roof on. Um, we're framing out the interior right now. We're hoping to be done April 1st, mm -hmm. could be sooner, could be shortly after, but we're definitely going to be done before next June um, because that's when your season starts. Where that's you bring when our, yeah. So, um, so like you'll be working through the, through the winter. Right. And so a lot of the work now that we've gotten to a point, we're going to be finished with the exterior before winter. And mm -hmm. so all the work will be interior work that we'll be doing, um, this winter in the house to finish it up. Cool. Mm -hmm. And, um, so just to clarify, that's going to be where the full timers are mm -hmm. going to be staying. When you bring in college students, high school students for a retreat, they'll be staying here. Mm -hmm. What do they do? They sleep on couches. They throw in cots. They, they have we sleeping have, bags. So this was originally a convent. So right. there were nine bedrooms upstairs. Um, and uh, we took, and they have a very large bathroom with three different stalls. Mm -hmm. um, we took three of those bedrooms and turned them into a dorm room. Oh, okay. And we have bunk beds in there. And um, we currently have another dorm down. We have a finished basement that was used for offices with the Don Bosco Center. Mm -hmm. We also turned one of those large rooms into a dorm room. Um, when we move out of here, we'll, be, we'll reconfigure the uh, house to, to meet some of our needs to make a little bit more comfortable living for the volunteers. So. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, you also mentioned some work you're doing over at a property on Hardesty and St. John. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think you mentioned that you're putting a new roof on that house. Right. So that's the homeowner that we uh, met actually a couple years ago. We painted her house, um, and that is part of our home repair program. So mm -hmm. uh, neighbors hear about our program. We work in the Northeast. Um, we used to work all over the city when we first moved here, but we quickly were overwhelmed with projects. Right. And we wanted to be able to respond in a reasonable time to people's projects. Um, we still have, at some times of the year, depending on when people apply, up to a year waiting list. So we're, um, we're still, um, there's a lot of need out there when it comes to maintaining your house. Um, but homeowners hear about it, it's word of mouth some referrals from the city, and um, I go out and visit, make sure that it's a project we're capable of doing and doing well. And and it's not so technical that you can't just throw people on. It's not like right. a, it's, it's more of an expertise problem than a people problem. We have to think about safety, um, particularly with roofs. This roof is particularly, doesn't have a big, uh, it's not very steep, mm -hmm. and so we could work on it. Um, we don't do plumbing, we don't really do electrical, um, big foundational work we don't we don't really do but we, we could do pretty much anything on the exterior of repairing siding painting um, roofs we could do uh, most interior remodeling re uh, fixing bathrooms um, bedrooms kitchens things like that um, we could do most most work I'm a licensed contractor mm -hmm. um, and then other community members that work with us we lead the volunteers we have the knowledge and then they're just kind of they're learning how to use the tools and, and help us along. Okay. Um, What's the threshold for accepting a project, generally speaking? You're thinking about qualifications? Or yeah, I mean, if somebody's mm -hmm. saying, wow, you know, my roof is having issues right now. Right. Would I, would I qualify? I mean, it doesn't, like you mentioned before, it doesn't, they don't necessarily have to be Catholic to participate. Right. It's, it's I mean, so people we don't of all have, walks of life. We don't have any strict qualifications. Our working area is 64123 through 64127. Mm -hmm. um, and we um, 
we figure that we are a volunteer organization. Our work is not going to be done as quick as a professional or um, probably as um, I take pride in the quality of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hate saying this, but it probably is not going to be the exact quality as a professional as well. Or if mm-hmm. it is, it's going to take a lot longer for us right. to do that. So we kind of figure that people that can hire professionals will and should. Right. Um, and you discourage somebody from being like, I'm going to save a few bucks by yeah, hiring these people. Right. Um, because we have high school students and college students mm-hmm. doing the work. Right. And so if people can afford to hire a professional, they would. Um, all the homeowners we work with do pay us back for the cost of the materials. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing unique about our program. Other city programs, Christmas in October, they have other models. It's great that they have their models. Um, for us, it's important that the homeowner is a full participant in the work that we do. So we like to say we're working with the homeowners. And um, and so the, while our labor is free, um, the, the materials that we purchase, um, the homeowners pay us back for those and they're mm-hmm. able to pay at a monthly rate um, with no interest. And so we have some homeowners that pay $20 a month, some pay $100 a month. It's mm-hmm. whatever fits into their budget and they, right. they set that rate. What happens if they end up, you know, setting a bar that they can't maintain? Is there a process by which you could allow them a deferment or something of that nature? Right. So we we just ask for full communication. Like I had a homeowner recently let me know that um, they had some recent medical bills that came up, so they would like to pay a little bit less or maybe even skip a month. Mm -hmm. And we're we're fine with that. Um, We actually have an 80% payback rate which I think is pretty good. I don't know what this typical bank is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't like to confuse low income with irresponsible, which sometimes right. people think. Right. Um, it just, they're working with limited resources and they have a lot of needs. Um, so we do get a lot of payback. Um, and um, yeah, so we ask for clear communication. If a homeowner doesn't pay us back, um, we uh, will forgive that debt, but we won't do another project with them. Right. And the way we work is a lot of times we'll approach, we'll enter a house and there will be a lot of needs. Um, we'll identify maybe the most pressing need and or the first priority. We'll do that project. And once they pay us back or make continual payments, the following year we could begin the next project. Right. So there's that incentive for homeowners to pay us back as well, because that means we can continually do more and more projects with them. So uh, can you have you ever had a particularly negative interaction with a homeowner who was just uh, defiant in their unwillingness to pay you back? Um, or no, I mean, we we have homeowners that haven't paid us back for whatever reason. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're we not in the business of debt collecting. Right. Um, You're not you know, leaning on them too hard. Yeah, and we're a nonprofit. We'll send out reminders. We'll let homeowners know, um, you know, that these funds that they pay back, allow us to continue to do that work for other homeowners and so we're we're continually and that's part of our sustainability of our program we don't rely a lot on grants right because we have the volunteers that come here they pay a fee um, to come here and spend a week with us that is where majority of our funding comes from to do these projects and then homeowners pay us back for those cost materials so that also replenishes our funds to continue to do the work so really we put good faith into our neighbors um, we try to build that relationship with the homeowners when we're doing the work. Right. Um, and so um, so then homeowners, I believe, um, 
want to pay back their their funds. Right, they're appreciative of the work. Right. I, generally speaking, yeah. I assume that was the case, but uh, I thought I'd yeah. ask if uh, there had ever been an, oppor- uh, you yeah. know, an occasion where you had been taken a, a right. advantage of or something like that. Yeah, uh, not really. Not really. Right. Um, but yeah, we have we have had homers that don't pay us back. Right. Um, so, well, one of the other things that you have started up is this uh, neighborhood accountability mm-hmm. board. I had a chance to listen to you present the basics behind that initiative during a Northeast Alliance Together meeting probably about a year ago mm-hmm. now. And I know that your your trial period there is with the Indian Mound neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose Indian Mound? We chose Indian Mound for a variety of reasons. One, they had a high percentage of homeowners. So with our program, we can't work with um, rental properties, mm-hmm. um, both in our home repair program and we wanted to address code violations differently with rental properties as we do with homeowners. Um, the Neighborhood Association, Brian Salder and um, other folks in the association were res- receptive to the idea of restorative justice. Um, not all neighborhoods in the Northeast um, were as receptive to the idea. Um, and Indian Mound is a, is a larger neighborhood in the Northeast compared to some of the other neighborhoods like Pendleton Heights, for instance, mm-hmm. the neighborhood that we're in. Um, and they had a they had a fair amount of um, code violations in that area when you look on 311 map. And so with all those things, it made sense. We already had a relationship with some of the code officers um, from projects we had worked on. And so we... We decided that with the neighborhood uh, support and with the right um, climate, I guess, we decided to go for it. And I know there are a lot of layers to that initiative. It, it's um, not really uh, an open and shut deal. It, it requires uh, cooperation between mm-hmm. individuals. Um, but I did want to ask about, I guess, can you succinctly describe kind of how it works in a basic form so people get a sense of whether or not it might be a fit for them? Yeah. So the idea is, and it comes with the back knowledge of how the current code process works, Mm -hmm. but the idea is that we don't believe that low-income families that have code violations on their house because they don't have the funds to maintain their house should then be paying fines to the city because of their condition. Right. It's backwards, right? Yeah. It doesn't help. They can't afford to do the work. They can't afford to pay the fine. And if you're just going to keep finding them, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They'll never get to it. People hate their neighbors for reporting them. People hate the city for levying the fines on them. And they're still unable to maintain their property. Seems so especially tone deaf, right? Yeah, it doesn't get anywhere. And so the idea of this is that neighbors will meet with the neighbors. So there are na- most code violations are reported by their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that neighbor has whatever reason they're motivated to report on their neighbor. And then that, um, so the idea is to bring those two neighbors together to learn about each other's situations. Why is it important for you that I maintain my house? Mm-hmm. And why am I unable to maintain my house? Right. To facilitate that conversation. The idea is maybe through that conversation, also new resources are discovered. Um, that perhaps we didn't know before. So maybe I don't have a lawnmower and that's why I never mow my lawn. You have a lawnmower that you are open to letting me borrow. Um, That is a resource that we did not know about before because that conversation was not had. Um, And then also the idea is that really the city should respect the 
the reason the city's enforcing this code is because neighbors are calling in on it. But then on the flip side, if a neighborhood as a whole through the association or through the next door neighbors decide, hey, this homeowner does have code violations, but you know, 30 days is an unreasonable time. And as their neighbors on the block, I'm okay with them to take a year or two years knowing that they have a plan to address their their housing codes. Mm the city should respect that because ultimately what I see is the city is a representation of the people. And so I think the accountability boards, accountability boards put more power into control of the neighborhoods and the people and how they want to, um, yeah, live with one another as neighbors. An opportunity to gather some more perspective of a neighbor that maybe you only knew by this unsightly or unseemly code violation. Right, and we can't share, all these meetings are fully confidential. But I can say that, you know, there are neighbors that have realized like, oh, like I didn't know that your brother died two months ago and he was the one that always took care of the yard. Or I didn't know that you recently got in a car accident and have all these medical bills Mm -hmm. and, or that your house is on the historic registry and takes longer to, like there's there's factors that people aren't aware of and when they learn those factors, it's more people get into more of a problem-solving mode rather than an accusatory mode. Right. Um, or you know, it's it's almost a you know a crutch I think mm-hmm. to just well I'm gonna call codes on them. Right. I don't like what I've seen and I don't want to know their story. But once you get a chance to sit down with them, you realize that most people are generally receptive to help, mm-hmm. generally receptive to constructive criticism, right. and have a willingness and desire to improve their circumstances as well you know they don't want to live in a home that's perpetually uh you know in, no in, in a bad to. state of repair right? <laughs> right i mean if they have a leaky roof they don't want it to be leaky forever you know right. um and i think sorry b- before we move on to that no. point i think one of the greatest things that comes from this and the feedback that we've received from people going through the code uh, accountability boards is neighbors say um they begin to feel uplifted that people are on their side. When a neighbor is allowed to go through the accountability board because of their house, they, rather than feeling that the city is punishing them, they feel, oh, the city actually cares about my situation and wants me to figure it out. Or my neighbor actually cares about my situation. And that flippant attitude, rather than the world, there's so much violence in this world, rather than feeling like the world is against you, to have that flip of attitude as, oh, my neighbors and the city actually care about me, can, can totally transform your life. And, and, and we believe that, and we think it can transform the neighborhood. When we, when right, we a that. source of optimism, mm-hmm. absolutely. The, um, and it lo- I understand a couple other things related to that board. S- looks like you're, you're looking for somebody to run it right. in that neighborhood. I, I wanted to ask about maybe what qualifications you want or what what kind of personality you're looking for as it relates to that. So we had um, a AmeriCorps VISTA position to help us get this program off the ground. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of upfront work. Um, Jimmy, who is our um, coordinator, he went door to door to every single house in Indian Mound and handed out flyers. And he also went to every single uh, house that had a code violation and and reached out to those homeowners to tell them about the program Mm -hmm. and the boards. So that was a lot of initial upfront work that he did and we're thankful for it. Now we're looking for a coordinator, ideally from the neighborhood. And our vision is that this will be the new way that the city handles code violations citywide. Jerusalem Farm does not want to operate this program. We think it needs to be rooted in the neighborhoods. Just like they have a code inspector that um, 
they are assigned by areas, by mm -hmm. neighborhoods. We would like there to be a accountability board coordinator attached with maybe every code inspector um, also connected to those neighbors. Um, that idea of the neighbors know what's best for their neighborhood. Um, so we are looking for someone in Indian Mound that um, is, um, one, there's a large Hispanic population. So we need someone that's fluent in Spanish mm -hmm. because we need to be able to cross those language barriers in, with this program. Um, we're looking for someone that is comfortable uh, speaking publicly and speaking with neighbors in somewhat of a community organizing fashion. And we need someone that is passionate about um, ideas of restorative justice um, and these ideas of um, trying to bring neighbors to, to work together with one another. Um, they also need to be able to communicate um, timely and clearly with we were, we're working with the Center for Conflict Resolution, we're working with city officials, we're working mm -hmm. with code inspectors. So someone who's organized, able to communicate, um, a lot of this happens over email, um, and um, to be able to organize the accountability boards, to, to pull people together these meetings, and then also to be able to have the proper documentation um, that the courts need and, and the city needs and other, other things like that. Okay, so, cool. Uh, how, how would they reach out to you if they want to they can be, being considered they can call us um, we have our phone number it's 816-421-1855 they can email us at jordan that's my name at jerusalemfarm.org um, right now we're looking for someone that can contribute we're saying five hours a week or 20 hours a month Okay. Um, so it's not a full-time position and um, we can pay um, right now we have a volunteer that's kind of an interim mm -hmm. um, if someone wants to volunteer that would obviously be great because mm -hmm. we can use those, these funds um, actually towards repairing homes right but we do have $15 an hour that we can pay um, for that 20 hours a month um, for somebody who needs a supplement their income, supplemental or, something income like or something like that if that's needed. Okay, well, we'll make sure to uh, highlight that as well. Yeah. Uh, I did also want to ask you, you mentioned uh, another program you're working on is a compost program. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about how that began, how it works, and wh what you're hoping to accomplish with that. Right. So in Kansas City, you can not, uh, there's no citywide composting program. And when we moved here, we both had a need of compost. Uh, with our garden mm -hmm. and we also had um, the realization that um, I think it's like 15% don't quote me on this look it up mm -hmm. but um, of our waste that goes to the landfill is uh, food waste. Ever diligent I decided to follow up on Jordan's request to check his statistics. As it turns out the EPA estimates that food waste makes up for 21% of the waste in landfills. That's more than any other single material. And um, that's a large percent. And the issue, that food does break down, but in the landfill it breaks down in a way where methane is produced. And that's not um, that great for the environment. Um, and so we thought that we could both educate homeowners on the practices of composting while also gathering compost uh, which would help us in our gardening. 
And so we started about four years ago a curbside compost program in Pendleton Heights. We go around on bicycles and bike trailers every Tuesday, which is our trash and recycling day. Mm -hmm. And we pick up compost from our neighbors. We're the only curbside compost program in Kansas City. And from my understanding, um, our program is a large reason that Pendleton Heights is um, considered a green neighborhood um, mm. in Kansas City. Among other things that are happening in the neighborhood, there's glass recycling and so forth. But um, right now we have about 70 neighbors that are officially signed up for our program. Um, you know, every Tuesday it, it varies on who's putting out their compost and who's not um, as, you know, people go on vacations or consume differently. But we distribute five gallon buckets. We spray paint on them Pendleton Heights curbside compost with a nice eggplant. Um, they put it out on their curb, we pick it up, we bring it back here, we um, maintain the piles, we flip them um, two or three times a week. We also have some of the compost over at the community garden. We also have one business, Elvira's, mm -hmm. um, off the avenue. Sure. We collect from them twice a week and they give us big, um, big containers of compost. Right. So that it's awesome that there's a conscious business um, looking at alternative ways of disposing of their waste. Bonus, um, they also have really delicious fried gorditas. They do, yes. I, so go eat at Elvira's and also feel good that their food waste is being composted. Cool. Uh, is there, if you want to sign up for it, is there a cost to that? No cost. Um, we do once a year ask for donations. There is an expense that we have of maintaining our bikes and maintaining our buckets right. that we collect in. Um, our buckets that we distribute are donated by um, Price Chopper Bakery. Um, they're ones that they had frosting in and we clean them out and we use those buckets and so that's where we get those from. Um, so it, really we try to yeah, keep in our resources, find things that would otherwise be thrown away and, and find new purposes. Awesome. So, mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, we, we had talked about this before we started recording here. Mm -hmm. But I thought I'd give you an opportunity to maybe talk about what's next. Uh, 2018 right. is right around the corner. Right. What kind of plans do you have for that? And what do you hope to accomplish over the next couple of years? Right. So we are um, a little more than five years old. We'll be um, celebrating, our, celebrating our sixth anniversary uh, this May 1st. Mm -hmm. And um, after we complete this house, which it should be completed by that, mm -hmm. that time, um, I will really feel like we have settled into this space. Um, We've gotten to know a lot of our neighbors. Um, you know, we've, as just as a nonprofit-wise, um, we have normalized. Um, there's a lot of effort and work and insecurity when you're starting out, just um, institutionally as a nonprofit. Um, and with this new house, we'll be settled. Um, we have no further plans of expansion, um, building-wise. Mm -hmm. um, we are not looking to create a citywide or national model. Um, we believe strongly in locality and, and smallness. Mm -hmm. um, but we do hope to continue to be um, ultimately what we try to view ourselves as and hope that we are is a nonviolent um, presence in the community that um, is open to the needs of our neighbors and to, to the capacity that we're able to as individuals to um, share of our resources and to address the needs that we hear about. Um, that's how the compost program came about. That's how our tool library program came about. That's how our um, code violations came about. They weren't ideas that we um, thought of. 
they were ideas that after I went to court four times with homeowners that requested me to advocate with them, mm-hmm. or after we had enough homeowners say, hey, I can do this, I just don't have the tools, mm-hmm. um, we realized that these were things that we could assist in. Right. And so I think just down the road, I'm excited to see like what what needs come to us that we can advocate for. I know that um, a lot of us advocate for a living wage because um, a lot of the homeowners we work with um, work low-wage jobs. Mm-hmm. And I know that also threats of deportation with immigration policy is an issue. And a lot of homeowners we work with in our neighborhood um, are, yeah, fearing that with Do- with DACA. And so these are more national issues, but they're nonetheless local issues because these are issues that our neighbors are facing. And right. so I don't know what kind of presence we as a community can be to support those communities, but those are things that we're constantly evaluating and discerning. Neat. And I, I guess I'll ask you this because you just brought it up, mm-hmm. and uh, well, I'll try to wrap it up after this. I know I've taken a lot yeah. of your time. But that was an interesting point, I thought, regarding these these national issues that face mm-hmm. people on a local level. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourselves having a role in politics and, and political issues? I mean, it seems like a couple of those kind of blur the lines there, right? Yeah, so our, you know, our... Um, community is made up of individuals and we are motivated by our faith and some of the key um, tenets of our faith are the idea of human dignity in other people no matter your circumstances or um, your actions or your identities we all have this inherent dignity within us and that needs to be protected and safeguarded and so that naturally leads us into the political sphere in life both locally and um, nationally and globally even um, when we think of our foreign policies. Um, And so, yeah, we as a community um, of individuals led by our faith do see that we have a role to engage in the political life. Um, As Jerusalem Farm, we don't support any specific candidates Mm -hmm. um, of any sort, but we do um, advocate for a variety of issues um, that um, we're, we're legally able to as a nonprofit, um, but also as individuals, I know that many of us are active in um, local and national political issues and movements. Well, interesting. And I know mm-hmm. we do have an election here on November 7th, yes. so uh, hopefully everybody will get a chance to have their voice heard on that yeah. and um, moving forward as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll leave it at that, I think, for this one. I Great. appreciate your time, Jordan. Thanks for sitting down with me today, yeah. and uh, keep up the good work that you do. Thank you. Yeah. There you have it for my conversation with Jerusalem Farm Project Director Jordan Sheely. Now, if you're interested in what you heard today or you'd like to help out, there are ways to do that. Simply call 816-421-1855 or email them at jordan at jerusalemfarm.org. Thank you for listening.